Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we thank you once again for our salvation, for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This salvation does not depend upon our human merit and does not depend upon the good things we do or don't do. It doesn't depend upon our feelings. It depends on the finished work of Christ. And we ask your Holy Spirit who came to this earth dispatched by your Son to generate the text of the New Testament, to empower the church, to regenerate, to indwell, to baptize, to seal, to make intercession, to distribute spiritual gifts, and numerous other things, that tonight he would um, illuminate our hearts to this great uh, sermon of Stephen's and for his leading in the book of Acts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going through um, the emergence of the church from Israel. And this is a major point. This is a major point in the ongoing revelation uh, after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came to earth. We have the ascension, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He dispatches the Holy Spirit. And we have regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, intercession, and we have spiritual gifts, and we have these, these and many other blessings that the Holy Spirit creates uh, in the church age. And as a result of that, eventually, on down in the book of Acts, the church and Israel diverge. And the divergence is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a divider uh, between the church and Israel. And so we're studying that process. And Acts 1.8, of course, says that you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And the thing you want to observe here uh, as we go through Stephen's speech, which is just one of several points in this separation process, is that here you have in detail how the Holy Spirit historically leads the church. And it's not a very flattering picture. People have a very idealized view of what the New Testament church was. We're always going to get back to the New Testament church. Actually, we shouldn't, shouldn't say that because the New Testament church was full of warts and was very immature. It was the child stage of the church. The theology wasn't developed. Um, the people uh, did not really have a profound vision of what Christ had done. Uh, it, it dawned slowly. It took time. And the thing to notice here as we look at these, these issues that the Holy Spirit led through an understanding of the Word of God. There was a combination of how the Holy Spirit worked. And if, you could, if we could personalize the church as a, as a believer here, the Holy Spirit engineers circumstances so that there are circumstances that impinge upon the church. As a result of the circumstances putting pressure on the church, the church at the time when that pressure comes then goes and looks at the Word of God. 
At least some people do. And in this case, Stephen was the one who went to the Word of God to deal with the circumstances. So it's interesting to watch that the Holy Spirit's leading isn't spooky. It isn't something mystical. It is quite forthright, quite clear, and quite rational. It's when people are faced with adverse circumstances, we go to the Word of God. The unflattering point about all this is it takes strenuous circumstances to force us back into the Word of God. So that's what I mean when it's not a flattering picture of the church. Well, we've looked at several steps in this process. We've looked about, in Acts 2, the process started out with this work of the Holy Spirit. This work of the Holy Spirit was done on believers only, not on unregenerate believers. So in Acts 2, you have a spiritual separation that happens. Then we went further, and in Acts 6 and 7, we're looking at the church getting a view of its worldwide mission. So we talked about Stephen, and we said, if you'll remember back on the notes on page 61, the outline of Stephen's sermon, we'll finish that tonight and go on, the point that Stephen's making is he's answering accusations against the church. And in doing this, in doing so, he is giving what we call an apology not in the modern English sense of the everyday meaning of the word. Apology sounds like being apologetic, but apology was a legal answer in a public hearing. That's the context of it. If you really want to see that Greek word and how it, um, what it means, you know, if some of you remember the philosopher Plato and Socrates, um, the section of Plato's works that deal with Socrates' defense is called the Apology. And that's the use, classically in Greek, of that word. It wasn't being apologetic. It was answering an official hearing, a charge. So that's why, if you look up in chapter 1, verse 1, this is a public hearing that's going on here. The analogous to uh, a Senate or uh, House committee hearing in public with everybody watching. That's what the context is here. So that's why when in verse 1 it says the high priest asks are these things so? What are the things the high priest is asking? The high priest is asking the issue that was raised in verse 13 of the previous chapter. Because it says they put forward false witnesses. And the fact that they're called false witnesses implicates the, the, the uh, society and the system that was going on at the time. In other words, the false witnesses is a term that you would expect to see uh, of an accusation that's official. It's a legal, political accusation. And the accusation is in verse 13. This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, the temple and the Torah. That's the charge. And not only that Stephen did it once, he kept doing it. So whatever Stephen was doing, uh, it finally caught up with him politically. And so this is the, the Luke has recorded for us, because keep in mind, Luke has got the Romans on his mind about the history of what this new thing called Christianity was all about. So Stephen now gives his apologetic for the Christian faith. 
This is answering the false accusations that Christianity was demeaning the temple and the Torah. And we have so far studied verses 2 through 16 in which Stephen gave the basis for his answer. He started out, and, and notice how he does this. First of all, it's very obvious that Stephen starts out in verses 2 through 16 laying the foundation for what he's going to say in the Word of God, in God's historic revelation. You notice he doesn't answer at first the accusation of verse 13. He's not going to directly go to Temple and Torah yet. He's going to first give background. And that's something that uh, I have to keep on learning, and, and many of you have to learn, that you cannot give an answer too fast. You have to sit back and think about the question. Don't go out there with your tongue way ahead of your brains because it's easy to do and that's how you dig a hole. Tongue is a very good shovel for digging a hole. So verses 2 through 16 deal with how Stephen laid the basis for his answer. So he goes back to Old Testament history and if you have a study Bible, the thing to notice throughout this speech is look at all the verse references and notice how many times he's using the Old Testament. Almost 50% of the text is directly cited, cited from the Old Testament. This is an enormous, enormous percent of text that goes back directly to the Old Testament. Now, granted that Luke might have abbreviated some of this sermon, uh, calling out perhaps highlights of the sermon that were important for the overall purpose of the book of Acts <clears throat> under the Holy Spirit's guidance. But the thing that we need to think about is if you and I were there with a tape recorder and we watched this guy Stephen do his thing, what kind of an impression would you walk away with as far as this guy's competency in the Old Testament? Think you'd be impressed? I think I would. Under the pressure of the moment, in a public hearing, before the high priest... Now, consider the theolo theological authorities of his time. The high priest was a theological authority of his time. I mean, here's the spiritual leader of the country. And this guy's basically telling me he doesn't know what he know, really doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to the Word of God. So, in one way... This is uh, very audacious to do this. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the people were largely offended to think that this deacon in this little new sect is out here telling the high priest what's so. It reminds you of church history when John Knox went into the Queen of Mary of Scots and called her a whore in the middle of the whole royal court. And he meant both the literalness and he also meant spiritually. So, the, the audacity of many of the prophets of God. Now, these guys aren't out here to, to make enemies deliberately. But there, there's a certain fierceness in the word of God that brooks no opposition. And Stephen 
it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So here is the filling of the Holy Spirit manifested in a public hearing with a rational argument based on Scripture. A massive command of the Scriptures. And what was his point in verses 2 through 16? Well, the, the outline I've given you of page 61 shows you that God began revelation to the first Jews on Gentile soil. It's always good to go back to foundations. You know, it's a principle that you see again and again. Uh, it's, a, it's a principle that's largely missed in our present society. But if you think about uh, a lot of the political problems uh, of this country could be solved if people would just carry around a copy of the Constitution and pull it out and read it. I understand Focus on the Family has a copy. I haven't got one, but I know my, one of my sons carries one around all the time. A little pocket version of the Constitution. <clears throat> he uses it all the time. People talk about a political issue, out it comes. Article 3, boom, boom, bang. And there he is. And I think that's a great discipline. Most people haven't heard of the Constitution. Proof of that is, in the last election, they thought this was a democracy. It's not a democracy. America never has been a democracy. It has a constitutional republic. That's why there's limits on the authority of the voter. People can't vote any way they want. In fact, in the original Constitution, senators were not voted into office. They were appointed by the governors of the states. And why were they done? Why was that done? States' rights. Because the original Constitution said there was the popular house, that's the House of Representatives, that's why they call it representatives. And that was to get uh, feedback from the people. But then, wisely, the colonists realized that there had also to be rights of the colonies that had become states. And those colonies had certain rights. And there wasn't any representative of the right. And the idea was that your representatives are proportionate to your population, but your senators are not proportional to the population. There's only two for each state because each state should have an equal say in the federal government. States' rights. And of course, the, dem the whole idea of democracy got in and we've washed away that part of the Constitution. But there it goes back to foundations. And it really, and people really need to get back to see why the fathers put that document together the way they did. And I might put a little plug in here for a good source material document, a good source uh, set of books, is I noticed uh, during Christmas holidays that the Encyclopedia Britannica was selling for only $95 the Annals of America. And the Annals of America is a big, long book set, about this long. And it's, uh, it, the latest one goes up to 1986. And what's so nice about the Annals of America is each one of those sets of books is nothing but original source material. Every volume is original source material from a certain set of years. And what is super about that set of books is that the first two volumes are nothing but a sophisticated search engine on the front end of that set. You can look up any subject and it will give you every passage in every one of the source documents all the way from uh, 1490 all the way up to 1986. 
It's a massive set of books, and for $95 to get 15 volumes of original source material is quite a deal. But that's the kind of stuff that when you get into that and you understand source material, then when you, you'll quickly see that a lot of the discussion is quite trivial that's out there. And what Stephen's doing is the same principle. He's going back to original source material. And it's the Old Testament. It's the source material that everybody, you know, is quoting. Oh, yeah, we're Old Testament. And we're, the, we're the nation that gave the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, we'll try reading it once in a while. And that's what Stephen had done. He had read it. And so the first section of this, he's laying the foundation for the origin of the nation. And if he can show that the nation was founded on certain principles, then he can apply those principles to the present situation. And so that's why he says they departed the land of, K of, of uh, Chaldeans in verse 4. Abraham, in other words, what he's saying is that the first Jew was a Gentile. There was no Jew, wasn't such a thing as a Jew, prior to Abraham. So the first Jew was a Gentile. Jews came from the Gentiles. They came from the heartland of the Gentiles, which was in the uh, Babylonian area. Then it says, and it quickly goes on to verse 6, where he introduces the concept that God has a plan for history. Verse 5, he promised he would give to him as a possession the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing. Abrahamic covenant. So the origin of the nation is tied to this Abrahamic covenant. And properly understood, the Abrahamic covenant gives the purpose of history. The Abrahamic covenant is the key to history. It still is the key to history. It's amazing that in all the millions and millions of words since September 11th on television, writing in news magazines, there hasn't been one, including some of the Christian programs and Christian publications, there hasn't been one exposition, with few side exceptions, of the whole concept of the Abrahamic Covenant. I mean, here we've got a situation in modern history, right smack dab in front of our face, that is a outworking of the mechanics of the Abrahamic Covenant, and we did acting like it never happened. So Stephen is going to say you cannot think about Israel unless you think in terms of this, because God elected the nation to exist and anyone who opposes Israel is opposing the elective purpose of God. And that goes for today. When the Arabs want to eliminate the state of Israel, they are anti-God. And anti-Semitism, anti-Israel, will always receive the cursing of God. God will curse them that curses uh, his chosen people. So that's the first section. Then we started last week in verse 17 to 43. Oh, and the other thing please notice is that in this foundation document, he brings up the Joseph motif. And the Joseph motif 
is analogous to the Jesus motif. Remember we dealt with a couple of things. Remember the parallels? And two times Israel saw Joseph. The first time Israel came down, the, the, the sons of Jacob came down, they didn't recognize their brother. So here's the appearance of the Savior, but unrecognized. And then the second time they recognize him, uh, he, has ex- he has killed, attempted murder. Israel attempts to murder the guy that's going to save him, throw him in a pit. The only reason he didn't get killed was because Midianites happened to come by and they got more money and decided instead of killing their brother, they might as well get some money from him. And so he wound up in Egypt. And he was in the Gentile land. So there's the pattern. That's important to understand. When you read in the New Testament, the word and or the verb fulfill... Now, oftentimes, people will interpret this verb to mean fulfill prophecy. Ain't necessarily so. The verb fulfill can mean fulfill a type, fulfill a pattern. And I suspect that if you had asked Stephen what, if he had ever said Jesus fulfills thus and such, I think on his mind although he knew of prophecy, of course, he, the thing that gripped Stephen was that Jesus, the pattern of Jesus' ministry, fit the pattern of jo- Joseph, fit the pattern of Moses. So the fulfillment was centered on a typological fulfillment as well as a prophetic fulfillment. So I believe we went through the text last week and uh, if you, again looking at the 20s through the 30s in this chapter, just scan if you have a study Bible how much of this text is direct citation out of the Old Testament. Moses was, verse 22, educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. And you'll notice the language power of words and deeds. This phrase, words and deeds, is used in Luke 24, 19 of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the same author. He's taking Stephen's material and he's saying, see, here we have word and deed. Mighty and word and deed. This is not accidental. These are the little uh, fine points in studying scripture that you want to look for because they really revealed the Holy Spirit's wordsmithing. So he's mighty in word and deed, Moses was, fulfilling the type that Jesus was mighty in word and deed. Notice uh, he wanted to visit his brethren uh, after 40 years. So here, his first visit to the sons of Israel. Notice again, two visits. In the first visit, he came to the sons of Israel. He saw one of them being treated unjustly. He defended them and took vengeance. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting deliverance through him. The word deliverance means save, which is related to the word Joshua or Jesus. <clears throat> so here's the savior motif emerging in the biography of Moses. So he supposes that they would understand, but they did not understand. Just like the first thing with Joseph. Same pattern. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. Men and brethren, why do you injure one another? The man who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now, it's interesting. 
that the word push away is in verse 27 also occurs in verse 39. So when you start seeing words like that recur, what does that tell you? It tells you the Holy Spirit has a purpose for putting those words in there. Now why would you suppose Stephen, in describing this thing, would use a verb like thrust away? He's setting up the pattern to say, you guys thrust away Jesus Christ. So, he goes on and uh, they reject him. Moses becomes an alien in verse 29. And in verse 30 it says, for 40 years he walked around outside in a Gentile land. It's sort of striking that it took 2,000 years to go from Abraham to Jesus. And so far, Jesus has not returned to Israel for 2,000 years. Same kind of motif. 40 years with him, 40 years without him. 2,000 years with him, 2,000 years without them. And then in verse 30 it says, an angel appeared to him. Of course, that really is the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's the angel Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity under Old Testament revelation. And the fiery bush appeared. So all that's quotation. And in verse 32, when God appears to, to, to Moses, you'll notice that he addresses himself, his self-proclaimed title reminds you of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what is implicit in that phraseology? The covenant. It's the covenant again. So here's, your, here's that covenant shaping history. The Lord said, take off your sandals. I have seen the oppression of the people, heard their groans. I have come down to deliver them. I will send you to Egypt. And now in verse 35, Stephen interprets. You see, this was imagine sitting under these kinds of teachers. <clears throat> what you see in verse 33 and 34 is a citation directly taken from an Old Testament text. Verse 35 is an interpretation it's Stephen's exegesis, his application of that Old Testament text. And so he says, now, I've quoted verse 33, verse 34. It's a quote from Exodus, if you look at your margin, marginal reference, if you have a study Bible, you'll see that. Then, in verse 35, he interprets with special application to his situation of the apology in the public hearing. He says, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Now see, the quote there, look at the sentence structure carefully in verse 35. Look after the verb saying. Now notice, he quotes the Old Testament again. Who made you a ruler and a judge? That's a citation from Exodus. So in verse 35, you read it carefully, he says, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying. Well, whom they disown saying is Stephen's summary of the text, who made you a ruler and judge? So he says, look, look carefully at Exodus 3. Don't you guys know, he says, don't you remember the story of Moses? Don't you remember what happened when Moses went down there the first time? They rejected him, saying so forth. And that one, he, he wants us to know, because notice how he uses the word, 
clever man, this Stephen, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God said to be a ruler and a deliverer. He says, do you guys ever understand your history? What is the history of this country, he says. What did we do when Moses was there? We said, who made you a ruler over us? Really want to know who made Moses a ruler over them? So he brings, heightens the contrast in verse 35. It's, a, it's an eloquent exposition of the text. Because what he does, he brings up the contrast of what God is doing in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and what the Jews are doing to resist him every time. Every time God moves forward with the Abrahamic covenant, his own people are the ones who resist. Not talking Gentiles here, he's talking his own people. So, uh, he is delivered with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, notice how in verse 35 he says, This Moses, and in verse 36 he says, This man. See what he's doing? He's, he keeps pointing back. This guy, demonstrative pronoun, pointing to Moses. This guy, look at him, he says. This man led them out. And notice how he describes the leading out now. Look at the next clause. What's the language Stephen uses in the next clause to describe Moses' ministry? Performing wonders and signs. Now, does that phrase strike you as something you've heard before in the book of Acts? You bet. In Acts 2, Peter's speech. That's the phraseology used of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the phraseology used of the Holy Spirit's work in the early church. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt for 40 years. Now notice verse 37. This Moses again. See, see how he keeps repeating the demonstrative pronoun for force to keep pointing to Moses. This is, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet. This is the one, verse 38, demonstrative use of the pronoun again. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness together with the angel. And our fathers, verse 39, here's his conclusion of this thing. He's coming up and wrapping it up now. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. They repudiated him. There's the word thrust away again. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So, quite clearly, by verses 17 through 43, working with Moses, you're getting a repeat of the same pattern that you had with Joseph. See where Stephen's going with this? Very clear where Stephen's going. And they don't like it. These guys know exactly where Stephen's going. This is an, he's incriminating his incriminators. He's accusing his accusers. He's undermining their moral claim, is what he's doing. They're making a moral and ethical claim against Stephen. And he's making a moral and ethical counterclaim against them. Okay? He summarizes and concludes now, and this is uh, tremendously irritating. Look what he accuses them of. Can you imagine um, a proud high priest surrounded by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees with all the temple paraphernalia around them, proud of the fact that they have maintained 
this institution over against the Greeks and the Romans, the Roman soldiers out there in the fortress of Antonia to the north of the temple. But inside the temple precinct, we have our Judaism. And we've been able to maintain worship of the true and living God. And now he comes up with this one. Verses 40, 41, 42, and 43. <clears throat> saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before them. And he describes it in detail in verse 41. They made a calf. So here's the idolatrous, the, the perversion of the central theology. He says, not only do you guys resist the prophets, but when, when you get in a chance to do it, you pervert doctrine. You pervert the testimony of the word of God. This is an incrimination of, this, of the whole fallen nature of man here. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as written in the book of the prophets. And verse 42 and 43, if you look in the margin of your study Bibles, you'll see that it's a citation from Amos at the, toward the end of the kingdom. So those of you who were here a couple of years ago, if you remember your history from the Old Testament the, up till from, from the time of Solomon to the time of 586 you have the king's discipline until you get to the exile. Now Amos is writing in that kingdom's decline period. That's where this text comes from. So now he's skipping all the way from Moses down to Amos. And this is more of Stephen's telescopic quotations. In other words, he packs a lot of time and compresses it. Why does he do that? To show cause-effect. Yeah, it took centuries to work out. But the cause was the same sin the very first day that nation became a nation. They were sinning. They were rejecting the prophets. They were perverting their theology. And the final end result in 586 was that the nation went into captivity. Not an eloquent statement about the righteousness of God's people. It's an indictment of God's people. So, and he quotes these emotional statements, uh, verse 42 and 43. And the meaning of those particular statements is because they all reference the gods of the pagans. It's a reminder of why God, in 586, moved the nation into Babylon, which is really Iraq. Why did he send Israel into Iraq? Because Iraq, or Babylon at the time, was filled with these gods. It was paganism galore. What, in effect, you find the prophets saying to Israel, Oh, you like these gods? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a 70-year vacation. You want gods? I'm going to take you into a land with thousands of them, and I hope you enjoy every single one of them. And Jews had never forgotten this, because in Jesus' day, the Jews were so... that One lesson they did learn in the captivity was, don't go back to pagan gods. It was awful. It was a horrifying experience in the country. And they might sin in different ways, but they're not going to sin that way again. But the point is, Stephen's reminding them of that sin. 
and their Jewish heart is sensitive to what they learned in the diaspora under Babylon. This was a very sore point. This is soul into the wound here. And he says, you think about it, folks. Moses, you rejected, you rebelled, you argued with him, you didn't accept him, and you, 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 you opposed everything he did, and you know the historical result. Eight centuries later, you people became losers in history. You saw your nation go down. You saw this temple destroyed. So, concluding the second cycle, again following the outline, page 61, the origin of the Torah. This is his answer to the Torah. Now, he hasn't mentioned much the Torah, but Moses is the Torah giver. And he says, what did the Torah say? If you obey, you will be blessed. If you depart, you will be cursed. Hold the place and go back to a place we haven't gone in a couple of years in the Old Testament. Go back to Leviticus chapter 26. Here's the blessing and the cursings of the Torah. And embedded in this chapter 26 is the history of the nation. Here is what the dispensation of the Torah, or the law, gave. It was a command to obey and be blessed, or curse and be cursed. Verse 14 of Leviticus chapter 26. Oh, let's do contrast. Verse 14, look at that, and then look back up in verse 3. Leviticus 26, 3. Leviticus 26, 14. What do you observe different about verse 3 and verse 14? Well, verse 3 is if you walk in my statutes. Verse 14, if you don't obey me and don't carry out. So, from verse 3 to verse 13 are the blessings. And from verse 14 and following are the cursings. And it's contingent upon Israel's response to the word of God. Verse 4, I will give you rain in their season. Notice the blessings are physical blessings. Give you rain in their season. The land will produce its crop. Trees of the field bear fruit. That's the economy. Your threshing will last for you until the grape gathering. The grape gathering will last until sowing. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I will grant peace in the land so you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. Military security. Economic prosperity. There's the blessings of a nation. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall by you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred will chase ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before you. But now in verse 14, if instead, verse 15, you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out my commandments and so break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever, will waste away the eyes and cause your soul to pine away public health problems. Do we see public health problems today? You shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. Trade imbalance. 
I will set my face against you so you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one's pursuing. In other words, you're so upset, so nervous, that you're so uptight, you're jumping when nobody's done anything to you. You live in fear all the time. And I'm going to work it out so that happens, God says. Very sobering passages here in the Old Testament. Well, that's what Stephen has on his mind when back over in Acts 7, he ties the Torah giver with the eventual history that worked out. What was the eventual history? Could you accuse Stephen of undermining the Torah? No. He's affirming the Torah. He's saying, however, that it is not the merit of the nation Israel. It's God, not Israel. It's the issue. What he's doing is wiping out self-righteousness, human merit, the claim that because we're a bunch of uh, religious people, we automatically have an in with God. He says, nonsense. You, religious Jews, are as sinners as the Romans are. And you've demonstrated it over and over again in history. So he comes to the last thing in verse 44 and 50, and he deals with his second accusation. Well, Stephen's always talking about the temple. He's undermining the temple. So his proof first was, I'm not undermining the Torah. I've shown you that the Torah was fine. It's just that you folks violated the Torah and reaped the consequences. Now, in verses 44 through 50... He's going to deal with the tabernacle and the temple because the two are united conceptually. And he's going to deal with that issue. So, in verse 44, he starts with the temple, with the tabernacle. <clears throat> the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, as he spoke to Moses, directing to make according to the pattern which he had seen, having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua, dispossessing the nations which God drove out. David found favor in God's sight, asked he might find a dwelling place. Solomon built the house. Now he just whipped through 400 years of history here in four verses. Boom, 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 boom. See him use the framework? See how he uses it? This is where I got the framework from speeches like this in the New Testament and in the Old. So, he summarizes the whole issue from tabernacle, which was a primitive dwelling place. It was moved around. It was out in the wilderness. And then finally you have a temple. But in verse 48 and 49, he cites, again, if you'll look in the margin of your study Bibles, you'll see that that is a citation out of the Old Testament. He refers to kings. And he's talking about the fact that when Solomon blessed that house, then, the prayer was actually in Kings, the reference in verse 49 is to Isaiah. The theology, however, in verse 49 is the theology of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings. Heaven is my throne, the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house are you going to build for me? Now, why does he, why does he bring that up? Because he says, look, that little house down there isn't my house. I, that's a testimony to me. But I'm not living there. I am omnipresent. I am the sovereign God. I am the creator. And you think you're going to make a house for me? No, you're not. You're not making any house for me. 
And Solomon, if you study his prayer, when he dedicated the temple, Solomon knew that. And the way Solomon is so clever in his prayer, he says, Lord, let it be that when the nation prays to this house, that you will hear from heaven. Solomon had no illusions that this temple was like the temple the Egyptians would build or the temple that the Assyrians would build or the temples that the Babylonians would build. They thought these houses really did house their gods. But when the temple was built, Solomon knew very well and the prophets affirmed him that that physical building was not housing the Lord God of Israel. It was a place for his representation but it wasn't housing the Lord God of Israel. So the conclusion in this verse 44 to 50 that Stephen's making, the point, if you look in your outline in page 61, again, God met Israel in a mobile tent in the wilderness and refused to accept the fixed temple in Jerusalem as sufficient. See, the Torah by itself couldn't save. The temple by itself couldn't save. The Torah led to the destruction of the nation. And the temple did not have God. And so the implication, although in his outline, I have it AB and then AB and AB part three, actually the B is an implication as to how Stephen's working because apparently things got a little hairy right here and he probably never finished his, uh, his message. The Jews who mistakenly clung to the temple in Jesus' day opposed God's word in the real temple. See, the real temple was really being built right then. But they were opposing that. So Stephen winds up with the uh, challenge in verse 51. And that's his answer to the trial. That's his answer to this public hearing. He says, when you review the text... You see, they can't argue with Stephen, can they? Was this history or wasn't it? This is history. Stephen didn't write it. He's just narrating it. And he says, when you look at history, he says, what you find is that you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. You're doing to Jesus what your fathers did to Moses, what they did to the temple, and what they did to Joseph. Now you can imagine, this, is, this ticked them really off. And this is when they started picking up rocks. And that was the end of Stephen. But it wasn't the end of Stephen's... Prodding the church, because here's the church packed into Jerusalem, all wrapped up, pushed inside Jerusalem. Out here is Samaria. Out here is the pagan world of Rome. Now, we just finished Acts 7. Turn to Acts 8, and let's look what happens. Because now we come to the next step. Now we have in Acts 8 through 11 the inclusion of Gentiles for the first time. You have Saul, verse 1. And by the way, notice the connection. Verse 59 of chapter 7. See, here's the Stephen-Paul connection. Paul heard all this. And that's why I've contended that this was probably the genesis of Pauline theology. He got it from Stephen under the Holy Spirit. Paul never for, uh, forgot this. Saul was in a hearty agreement putting him to death. There was a great persecution that arose against the church. Where? 
in Jerusalem. Oh. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? You will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now you see the unflattering thing in verse 1? We just got through a whole unflattering thing in chapter 7, that it wasn't Israel's righteousness. And now we get verse 2, which is not an unflattering, which is an unflattering statement about why the church finally became witnesses in Judea and Samaria. They got kicked out of Jerusalem, that's why. So God said, I want you to be witnesses there and there. If you're not going to be, then I'm going to kick you in the butt and move you out there myself. And that's what God did. And so Acts 8 is the narration of the moving out. Now, it's interesting. In Acts 8, it talks about Philip. Now, who's Philip? Philip was another one of those deacon guys. If you look back in chapter 6 of Acts, you'll see that Philip was named along with, with Stephen. So Philip goes along, and there was a man named Simon and describes the preaching of the good news and so forth. And we come to verse 14. And it says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. And what had happened is, verse 5, Philip had gone up to Samaria. And Samaria was a place that was half Jew and half Gentile. Now, if this, uh, if I can get this positioned right here, this map, here's a map of way the Old Testament looked, uh, the land looked, at the end of the uh, disciplinary the first phase, when the northern kingdom, remember the, from the Old Testament, you got the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, and this northern kingdom disappeared in 721 because it was overrun by Assyria. And the right here, here's Jerusalem. And up in here, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, up in this area is a place called Samaria. And that was the place where the Assyrians had a brilliant political idea to suppress the Jews. Their idea was that instead of stationing thousands and thousands of troops in there to rein in the Jews, what they would do is take people from this populated area, they take the leaders, the educated people, the merchants, the skilled people, and they move them all the way over to the Assyrian uh, cities. So they took captives out. Then what they did is they took the peoples up here, farmers and other people who would not be leaders, and moved them down into this area. So now we have a half-breed population of half-Gentiles and half-Jews. This is why you have the parable of the Good Samaritan with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all people that the Jews couldn't stand, it was the Samaritans, because they considered them kind of dirty people. they just dirty. Dirty in the sense spiritually. Uh, and for Jesus to talk about a good Samaritan who, remember in the parable, did what the priest didn't do. So Jesus campaigned on that point. And that was an early view of what was going to happen in the book of Acts. So here Philip goes into Samaria, he preaches, and they believe. Verse 12, 
Who's accepting the gospel now? It's not the Jews in Jerusalem. It's the Samaritans. And in verse 14, the apostles hear about it. They sent Peter and John. They prayed for them. They might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them. They had simply been baptized by water baptism, not spirit baptism. But when they began to lay their hands on them, they were receiving the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is that God, in order to make the point clear that Samaritans were now going to be included in the church, he had the official, uh, so to speak, the officials of the church come to Samaria and physically be there when the baptism of the Spirit occurred. See, that's why you can't normalize what's going on in the book of Acts. It, it happens differently in different places because of the different circumstances. Here, God wanted to show the church leaders that he had accepted the Samaritans because they trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Weren't circumcised, weren't doing this, weren't doing that, weren't doing something else. They had trusted in Jesus Christ. Period. And they were accepted. Now this causes ripples. Because you see, yeah, they believed in Jesus when they were Jews, but they were Jews who believed in Jesus. Now we got these half-breeds, these dirty people, and they can believe in Jesus? And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them too? Hmm, we'll have to think about that one. And then in Acts 9 and 10, we have the second phase of step three, with the Gentiles being included. Now we go to the coast, to a place called Joppa. And if you look at the map again, you'll see that, uh, still there by the way, Joppa, Haifa, Tel Aviv is there, close by now. But Joppa is the place where Peter goes, house of Tanner and so on. And the story culminates in chapter 10 of Acts with whom? Who's the guy that becomes a central guy? He's a Gentile. And of all Gentiles, what kind of Gentile is he? He's a Roman. And of all the Roman citizens, he's not just a Roman citizen, he's also an officer in the Roman army. Not only is he an officer in the Roman army, but it, that Luke is very careful to tell you what regiment, what uh, division he was part of. The Italian cohort which meant that he personally came from an outfit, a fighting unit, that was coming out of Rome. Came directly from Italy. So now you've got the Gospel coming to an officer of the Roman Empire who was a commander of a fighting unit that originated in the Italian peninsula, presumably near Rome. Not accident that the Holy Spirit picked this guy out in Acts 9 and 10. So we have then the church moving out and beginning to preach the gospel. And Acts 9 and 10, and we won't go through all the details, you can, you've, most of you have read it one time or another, uh, but in Acts 9 and 10, Peter is maneuvered into position and Cornelius is maneuvered into position. Look, for example... And uh, we skip Paul's conversion here in Acts, in Acts 9. We're skipping all that. In verse 36 of Acts 9, there was a certain disciple, translated in the Greek, this woman was abounding in deeds of kindness, came about, she fell sick, 
Lydia was near, and since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men, come and delay. To see how sneaky the God is, Peter hasn't got a clue that it's really not the sick woman. The sick woman is there because she's going to be the bait that brings Peter on the scene to be at the right city at the right time with the gospel. But it's interesting that God, the way he deals with all of us, he doesn't confront Peter directly. Hey, Pete, got a assignment for you. Going to go talk to a Roman army officer. Well, if he had walked in at Peter and, and had the direct approach, I don't think Peter would have responded like that. Peter would say, you better call John or somebody else. I'm not going to get me talking to a Roman army officer. So God didn't do that that way. God was a little sneaky about how he operated. Okay, Pete, come on out here. We've got a little first aid problem. You come on out. You, you can't resist this poor woman. She's sick. Okay, come on out. So she becomes the bait. And, I mean, obviously God cares for her too. This, by the way, shows you that when God moves, he always moves five or six different ways. He's working in her life. He's working in Peter's life. He's working in the lady's family's life. He's working in the disciples that are watching this whole thing go on. He's working in our lives because now we have the testimony of what he did with her life. So you see how God worked very efficiently. Then in verse 10, you have how God works with the Roman army officer. You'll notice that... Uh, Verse 3, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who said to him, Cornelius. So now there's an example, by the way. There's an example of Luke's Acts, theology, showing that God can work with godly Gentiles. In this case, this guy may well have been saved here at this point. May have been saved. And he was a saved Gentile, but he was going to be integrated into the church. So here's this angel calling him. And there's no, no reticence. The angel calls this Gentile. Now, can you imagine what was going on in the minds of Jews to see this, going, this, this whole thing? And it was so, so important that God communicate all of this clearly. In verse 9, Peter went on the housetop at the sixth hour... And he went into a trance. So while the angel is talking to Cornelius, you have the Holy Spirit putting Peter in a trance. See, all the preparatory work that went through. And that's kind of comforting. Because God just didn't jerk Peter around. Okay, Peter, you're all screwed up. And I'm going to straighten you out. Boom. God didn't work that way. God worked. Hey, Pete, just take a look at this and let's work here and then finally Peter's over here and now he's working here and while he's working with Peter like this he's getting Cornelius over and finally these two guys intersect and I'm sure you've seen that occur how God will lead uh, people across other people's pathways so we're running out of time tonight but if you will have a chance to finish reading just skim through chapter 10. I don't have to spend a lot of time there. But I would like you to see how the Holy Spirit leads. It's not, in this case, yeah, he, he used the supernatural approach in the sense that he, um, uh, you know, used visions. And today he doesn't always use visions. But it's clear. It's not spooky. It's not some uh, outlandish thing that's going on here. 
Okay, Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for the witness of how you led the early church. And we're thankful that had you not led this, then we would not be here tonight and be saved. And so we thank you and we owe you um, a great amount of debt because of how you worked through the gospel and bringing it out to us as the lowly Gentiles outside of Israel. And Father, we thank you that you open our hearts, you illuminate our hearts, and that you continue to save Gentiles, bringing them into the body of Christ through regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. We ask now that your Holy Spirit empower us that we can be witnesses in our own situations this next week. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, we'll have a few moments, I guess, when we can have questions, even though our primer isn't here tonight. <laughs> questions? Yes. Okay, the question is, does the Holy Spirit lead today with dreams and visions? You have to kind of be careful how you answer this, because um, there's nothing that says God can't do that. And I think we have testimony from godly people, particularly in the mission field, where this has happened. But the reason you want to be careful about that is that at the time these dreams and visions were going on, the New Testament canon had not been finished. And so the Holy Spirit was in the process of building the New Testament canon for these dreams and visions, particularly the one that we're seeing in Acts 9 with Peter and uh, Acts 10 with Cornelius. Um, those are Acts 10 with both Cornelius and Peter. Um, those visions were designed to cause a change in the church which would alter, or let's not alter, it's not the word, which would generate the New Testament theology. So when, therefore, later on, you read in later books, like in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, the si uh, um, how's, l let me read you that section because it's a... It's a, it's a case in point where you have a, a perspective from later on in the church after the New Testament has started to be written. You'll have a statement like this, Hebrews 2.4. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. 
And the, the picture there is it's all past. Past to the time of this author. And you see that again in Ephesians 2.20, who laid the foundation upon the, the apostles and prophets. You don't relay the foundation every generation. So, yeah, the God can work that way. But you have to be careful because there have been those in church history who get hold of that and then use, the, use um, the, that principle to, to argue that you have to have j- uh, dreams and visions or the Holy Spirit isn't leading you. And that is nonsense. For example, to counter that, think about Stephen. Show me one reference where Stephen had a vision. What we have in Acts 7, apparently, is a very good student of the Word of God. And we have absolutely no inference that he had any kind of a spooky uh, experience. What he did have was a fantastic insight. And so there's an example. Uh, No Damascus Road experience, apparently, not recorded for Stephen, although there was one for Paul. So I think when you look at those... Um, you look at the missionaries' uh, accounts of what happens on the mission field sometimes. That's an intensely pagan environment with very serious spiritual warfare going on. And I think, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. It's just I like to keep it in theological perspective so it doesn't take off and diminish the authority of the text. There's nothing wrong with miracles. Nobody is saying that miracles can't take place. It's all Protestants who, like us, believe in cessationism. All we're trying to do is protect the spiritual gifts and the the canon of Scripture. Once the canon of Scripture has been created in history and put into existence, it eclipses everything else. I mean, what else do you need? If it really were so that we needed dreams and visions, the canon shouldn't be closed. It should constantly be open. Now, where's Revelation 23? Who's writing it now? Um, and when, when you do have people who assert dreams and visions to the point where the dreams and visions become replacements for the New Testament text, think of what we've had. We've got the Book of Mormon now. Are we really serious? We, we want to open the door to this kind of stuff? But that's what happens when you're not careful how you handle that kind of approach. Yes? While you're talking about the, the canon, what's your thoughts on all the new translations of the Bible that are coming out now that are really getting almost tugging at whether, you know, the validity, whether this is still the true scripture sitting here now that it's been redone a couple more times, you know? Well, Okay, the question has it, what about then with a canon being completed and we translate that canon, canonical scripture into other languages, what do we do, for example, in our country when we have a translation every week, seems like, comes out? Um, that goes back to the, te- the issues about two or three years ago we were talking about the end of the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon was closed, what kind of text types were left. Um, <clears throat> 
there are variant readings in the manuscripts that go back very early. But if you have a chance to look at the variant readings, they're variants over very small thing. They're variants over spelling. They're variant, sometimes the, the case ending is a little different on a noun. Uh, they're clearly cases where there are transcribal errors that have occurred. The question now is, given the fact that you have manuscripts varying, which ones do you pick? What's the right reading? And that's called lower criticism. It's a whole science by itself. But like all sciences, it has its own assumptions. And it's those assumptions that are in part responsible for a big debate within evangelical circles about what is the best translation. So let me try to answer this in two, with two principles. There are two questions going on, not one. To the question of what is the best translation, there are two sub-questions that are involved. The first question is, what does translation X take as its source text? What is the chosen set of manuscripts? Obviously, translators have to work with a set of manuscripts and have certain ways they handle those transcripts. So that's one thing. Second problem, which is created in the 20th century, on top of that problem is problem number two. And that is, what is your translation theory? A lot of the modern translations have a theory of translation called dynamic equivalence. Meaning that what they want to do is take a word from the Greek, the Aramaic, or the Hebrew, and see how it's used in that culture and look around in English or American culture for words that are used the same way, dynamic equivalence. The problem is that, see, older translators didn't do that so much. Older translators tried to, quote, reproduce the original as much as possible. The modern translator, when he holds to some theory like dynamic equivalence, has to be careful because to take an example of communion, bread and wine were a staple in the Old Testament and in the New Testament culture. Now, tell me what is the corresponding elements of bread and wine in our culture? Well, somebody facetiously said Coke and chips. Now, dynamically, they may not be too far off. The average American looks at Coke and chips like if you were at a party, Coke and chips. If you were at a party then, bread and wine. So there is a dynamic, maybe, I'm not going to argue that, but maybe there's a dynamic equivalent. But who, with a sensitivity of, of a sensitivity to the, to the whole motif of wine in the Old Testament or bread in the Old Testament, would dare to translate that with Coke and chips? See, the dynamic equivalence doesn't work out because the, the, the wine and the bread have morphological meaning. That is, the grapevine itself with a grape and the chemistry of the grape and the, the, uh, the um, aging of the grape. All that is involved in a physical thing, a botanical truth that God created to be a vehicle for his revelation. 
God didn't invent Coke with all kinds of chemistry to it to reveal the things of his son. He did, however, invent grapes and the processes of fermentation and so on. So whatever he packed into the grape and into wine, we better just leave it there. And so I find you have to be very cautious about this dynamic equivalence. I've given you an absurd example, but... Oh, inerrancy is, uh, but the inerrancy is, that's another issue that came up with another aspect of language. That's a third issue. So I can't, we can't get a scatter into three or four issues. Let's just keep to the translation issue. So the one issue is what translation methodology is being used. And you can tell what methodology is used by reading a translation. If you have a King James text at home, you know it's kind of rigid. And it's not, by the way, the best translation. When King James translation came out, uh, people thought it was the most apostate thing going because King James was a, was a heretic anyway who commissioned it, and he had 50 different committees. And it's, it's not a uniform translation. It's a hodgepodge of different committees that put it together. But the point is the King James had a theory of translation, of, of trying to articulate in the language of the time the best rendition of the Greek text. And when they didn't want to translate a word, they would transliterate it. That's where we get the word baptized from. They didn't want to even mess with that. What was going to be the equivalent? Pouring, effusion, dipping, or immersion. And they had enough problems, so they just hands off on that baby. And they just put, all right, we'll translate it, baptize. So you guys learn Greek. And that's really what the word is. Everybody had to learn Greek, because baptize is not an English word. It's a Greek word. So that was a, what, a tight theory of translation. Now, the second issue that comes up, that is, you hear, oh, the King James, the new King James, and the King James is the original. Well, no, not really. The issue is deeper than that. The issue is what are the best manuscripts? And behind the King James, for the reason that in, when the King James translation was translated, there weren't any, quote, early manuscripts available, so they used the existing corpus of manuscripts they had, the best ones going. After that, manuscripts began to show up, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, and they would find these, these, these manuscripts that were older, that predated the manuscripts from which the King James was translated. Well, people started looking at that and said, you know, those, those manuscripts are older. I'll bet you they're better because there was less copying going on. So the reason is those manuscripts ought to be better. So in the 19th century, you have Greek texts like Westcott and Hort and, and so forth. And these guys came out and they altered the set of manuscripts that had primacy in deciding what the reading should be. They said the earliest manuscripts are, we put more weight on those early manuscripts. So, translations like the new ASV, uh, the ASV, ASV, uh, RSV in the 50s, uh, most translations today 
are taken off the earlier manuscripts. King James wasn't. The King James took existing manuscripts. And the new King James has preserved the old King James dedication of that original manuscripts. Not that the manuscripts of the King James were altogether perfect, but there's a whole approach that's different. Now here's the argument. The people who advocate the older manuscripts argue that because they're older, they're better. The people who argue for the background, or the textus receptus is called, the received text, the, the people who argue for that over against the early manuscripts says the reason you found those early manuscripts is because they were discards. They were they, they precisely because they were preserved tells you that they were never used. The manuscripts that were used were all beaten up with finger grease and everything else and they fell apart and were never used. So the fact that these manuscripts stayed on a shelf probably tells you that they were discards that were just left there because nobody wanted to use them. So just because they're early does not mean they're better. And that, you know, that's the debate that's been going on. But to relax everybody, the problem is that you just get into the, the text of the word. Don't worry about, I mean, the spelling in four different places is different. That's not most people's problem. Most people's problem is they can't even open the Bible, you know, blow off the dust and open it. That would be a profound act. And then we'll worry about whether something has a little yote or tittle on it at the end of it. So I really don't see that all this fussing about translations is too serious, because most people who do it, um, I don't think, too carefully to read anyway. Can you explain the word canon to me? The what? Canon. Yes, C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. Canon is a reference to the body of scripture that was deemed true and fitting for the Bible. For example, Protestants and Catholics have a different canon. If you look at a Catholic Bible, it has books in it the Protestant Bible does not have. You'll see 1st and 2nd Maccabees in the Catholic Bible. You will not see 1st and 2nd Maccabees in a Protestant Bible. Protestants and Catholics have two different canon, two different sets. Um, and that's because of arguments about the text, actually. Um, but canon means that there were all kinds of, of books written in the first century. There's the Gospel of Thomas. There's uh, First Clement. There's Second Clement. There's, I think, Third Clement, something like that. So a lot of these books, the church finally had to decide which are the genuine ones. And the ones that they decided upon became the canon. So the canon is the authorized, recognized, apostolic writings. Well, we're going to get into that as we go further. Into, in, on, on, after we get through the separation of Israel and the church, we're going to get into the, the duration of the church and then the end of the church age. Pat Robinson, for instance, said, 
Well, the, the, yeah, that gets into a whole other area. Um, we can say, there's there's no real event on the on the her, political horizon that can be said to be a fulfillment of a specific prophecy. What we can say is that the world as a law, as an entity, is setting up so that the events that do have to take place can take place more easily. For example, before Jesus comes again, he has to have a temple to come to. That means that somewhere in Jerusalem, Israel must construct a temple and have it there prior to the return of Christ. So all the fight you see over Jerusalem, there's, a, there's another scenario operating there with that. The return of the Jews to the land in 1948 was a very significant event because Israel has to be in the land in order for Jesus to come back. Jesus cannot come back to a Gentile land. He's got to come back to a Jewish land. So there has to be a Jewish land before Jesus comes back. So there are these kinds of things that we can point to and uh, say, yeah, it looks, you know, it could be easily, we can easily conceive of it. We can eat more easily conceive of the return of Christ now than 200 years ago. Because 200 years ago, there was no Israel. 200 years ago, Jerusalem wasn't the center of attention. And 200 years ago, there wasn't a global consciousness. Whereas today, we're rapidly going to a global consciousness. And when you see in history, God work, it, he always lets the human race try it on their own first and fail. And then he comes in the last hour and solves the problem. And what we're trying to solve now is how we coexist on this planet globally. And we, with the, you'll see the movement now with anti-terrorism toward a one-world police interaction to track these guys all over the planet. So you're getting the infrastructure built up for a global authority. Well, the question then is, uh, who staffs the global authority? And of course, our point is it can't be staffed by sinful men. It must be staffed by sinless men. And that means awaiting for Jesus. But had Jesus come back two or three hundred years ago, his global ministry would never have been appreciated to people who live in the 1700s. His global ministry will be appreciated for anybody who lives in our own day. So those are the kind of things that we can get into. And I think our time is up. So next week we'll move on and uh, try to finish out this uh, history issue of the emergence of the church.